Well, good morning, River City. It is my joy to serve you in this way by opening God's Word again, teaching from it, and by God's grace, through the power of the Holy Spirit, preach in such a way so that you are moved, not manipulated, but moved in the Spirit to more clearly see, more deeply love, and be more fully conformed to Jesus. We're continuing Luke's Gospel today, so Luke chapter 7, you can turn in your Bibles uh, to that. And as you're doing that, let me give you an outline of our of our time this morning. We're going to be covering two different stories, if you will, two different uh, parts of the narrative of the ministry of Jesus. Now, for the past couple of weeks, we've walked through a pretty significant sermon by Jesus. Starting in chapter 6, Luke tells us that when he came down to a level place and began to teach, and he opens with blessings and woes. He challenges the natural inclinations of us as humans. Instead of retaliating against and hating your enemies, Jesus says to love them. Jesus confronts the natural hypocrisy in us by calling us to humble ourselves, being willing to look first at our own sin, the log in our own eye, to confess, to repent, and then, and then we'll be able to see with clarity so that we can serve our brother and our sister by by helping them remove the speck that's in theirs. Jesus reminds us that a rotten tree has rotten fruit and that what will come from our mouths is the overflow of what's happening here in our hearts. And last week, Charlie unpacked the the warning that every other thing, every other thing that we would think we could build our lives on, any other hope or security is like sand that washes away when the flood comes. But also, he reminded us that the hope that we have in Jesus, that Jesus is, is a sure and a steady foundation, an anchor in the storm, and the only rock upon which our lives can be built so that by God's grace, when the waters rise, we won't get washed away, but we'll endure. And here in chapter 7, Luke tells us, after he had finished all his sayings, Jesus has finished this epic sermon, and Luke tells us that he heads back towards Capernaum, and on his way he is met by some people in need. Luke 7, we'll read verses 1 through 17, outline two stories of Jesus healing the sick. Remember, he has just spent the better part of the day preaching and teaching his disciples and all those who would listen about how life in the kingdom of God often runs so contrary to the normal and natural way we humans tend to act and expect. Mercy for the undeserving, blessing for the discomforted, woe for the comfortable, love for those who hate you. And then he demonstrates the power of that kingdom message that we just heard by healing the sick and raising the dead. And so here's what I want to keep in mind as we study this passage today. That we are all frail. That we all have brokenness of various kinds. We all deal with sickness and pain. And until Jesus returns to gather up his bride, we will eventually face death ourselves. Rich, poor, black, white, tall, short, bearded, or bald, this is our shared condition. But what I hope we'll also see is that Jesus has the unique authority to heal the sick. That Jesus has unique authority over life and death. And that Jesus meets us in our place of need and meets us in our sadness with compassion and with power. We are frail and on the slow road to death. 
And it is Jesus who comes in authority to heal and to give life with compassion and power. Let's read the text together. Luke chapter 7, uh, verses 1 through 17. Read along in your Bibles. It'll be on the screen as well. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Now after he, this is Jesus, had finished all his sayings in the hearing of, of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and and to heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he's the one who built our synagogue. Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you. But say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Verse 11. Soon afterwards, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bear, and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. And fear seized them all. And they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. And God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. This is God's sufficient word to build up and train his people. Now, we're looking at the power and compassion of Jesus on display in the context of two back-to-back miracles. First, the healing of the centurion's servant. And second, the healing of the widow's son. In each, we'll see the display of Jesus' power and we'll see his compassion And by God's grace, we'll be able to see how Jesus works in power and meets us with his compassion as well. So first, the healing of the centurion's servant. So now, Jesus and his disciples are heading to Capernaum. And on the way, they're met by a few Jewish elders who've been sent by a Roman soldier to get Jesus because there was a servant in the soldier's house who was sick. Now, a little background here. A centurion would have been the equivalent to an officer rather than just an enlisted soldier. Historians make note that the title would have denoted someone who was trustworthy, faithful, worthy of respect. Not someone who would pick a fight, but someone who would be willing to give his life if necessary. The motto of the U.S. Marine Corps, which is Semper Fi, Semper Fidelis, always faithful. That motto would apply here. So he was a Roman soldier and a citizen, a Roman citizen, which means that he would have been tasked 
with keeping the peace and representing Roman rule in this Jewish land. So in many ways, he's a, he's a representative of the oppressor of the Jewish people. But a few things stand out about this particular man. Uh, look at the text here. Verse 2. He had a servant in his household who was highly valued. He was important to the, this centurion. This relationship between them was significant. I can't help but think of Alfred and Bruce Wayne, right? Alfred, the butler and servant to the billionaire orphan. He, he becomes like a father to Bruce. Now, we don't have any other information. Maybe the Batman stretches a little much for you. But you have this relationship between master and servant that is as close as family. And so we don't know any other information about this servant other than at least to the centurion, he was very important. Verse 3 tells us he had heard about Jesus. Now we don't know what he had heard exactly, but like the other parts of Luke so far, word about Jesus, his message and his miracles was, was spreading. People were hearing about him. People were taking note. The words he taught and the miracles he performed were getting people's attention. And this Roman soldier heard about Jesus. More in verse 3. I think it shows he's clever. He knows he's not Jewish. He knows that the relationship between Romans and Jews is, is a tenuous cultural relationship, but he has a relationship apparently with some Jewish elders and leaders in Capernaum, and he reaches out to them and asks them if they would go seek out this Jewish rabbi I've been hearing about, this Jesus on my behalf. And so they agree. I think he's, I think he's smart. In verse 4, it says the Jewish leaders find Jesus and plead with him, come and help this man, come and help his servant. And they speak glowingly of him. He loves the nation of Israel, they say. He has spent his own money and resources and time to help them build a Jewish synagogue there. They're trying to make the case to Jesus that this man is worthy of Jesus' time. And so, that's what Jesus tends to know and what we know about this centurion. And so he goes with the men to meet the centurion and to help his servant, apparently. Now, in the same verse, in verse 6, we read that as they're coming close to the centurion's home, Jesus is stopped by more friends of this man. The first group is pleading with Jesus to come, and the second group almost pleading with him to not come. Look at the second half of, of verse 6. Lord, do not trouble yourself... For I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. It's a little confusing, isn't it? Like, do you want me to come or don't you? And there's a few things that could be happening. But I think one of the things that's happening is that when the centurion asked the Jewish elders to, to meet with Jesus, and to invite him to come, he wasn't sending them on a sales pitch. He was sending them as, as an emissary, as a, as a, a sign of goodwill. Who is a Jewish teacher more likely to listen to? A Gentile soldier or a Jewish elder? So he seems to be attempting to at least get his case heard in front of this man he's heard so much about in a humble way. But the, the approach of the Jewish elders, though, seems to be one of patronage. They're saying things like, Jesus, this, this man has done so much for us. He's done so much for Israel. Perhaps you should do something for him. He's scratched our back. Why don't you scratch his? And in fact, this is very consistent with the way that the religious Jews interact with God's law. They interact with Jesus. And so we don't know exactly how it happened, but the centurion decides that's not how he wants this to go down. He isn't trying to twist Jesus' arm. Look, I've been really good to Israel. 
Look how much I've done for you. I know the Romans rule over you, but I'm one of the nice guys. He doesn't do any of that. When the friends come to intercept Jesus, they convey the message of the centurion. Don't trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. That's why I didn't presume to come to you myself. See, the Roman centurion could have sent a whole envoy of soldiers to Jesus and bring him to his home by force, but he didn't. Because I think he knows that with Jesus, he's dealing with someone pretty significant. Look at the end of verse 7. He says, but say the word and let my servant be healed. You don't even need to come. Just just say the word. Keep reading. Verse 8, he says, for I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. Notice he doesn't say that I am a man with authority, but he says I'm a man under authority. Yes, he does have authority, but he knows his place. And all that he has heard about Jesus is that he too must be a man under some kind of particular authority. And so this soldier believes that Jesus can do what he's asking. He believes that Jesus has authority over sickness and knows that at his word, sickness will obey. And what is Jesus' response? Verse 9, when Jesus heard these things, Luke says, Jesus marveled at him. The word for marveled is astonishment. And there are two places where we see Jesus being astonished here early in the Gospels. One is here, and the other we read about in Mark's Gospel, where Jesus is preaching in his hometown, and he is hated and disbelieved there. And Jesus is astonished, is the same word used, at their lack of faith. So in Mark, he's astonished at the people's lack of faith. And here in Luke 7, he's astonished at the faith of this Roman soldier. And listen to what Jesus says about this soldier. I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Of all the people in Israel, the one with the deepest, most sincere faith is a pagan Roman soldier. Think about that. And Luke tells us that when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. So they get back to the house, and when they arrive, the servant is already well. So here's the power and compassion of Jesus on display here. First, the power. Jesus doesn't even visit the man. His authority to heal is not constrained by geography. From across what? Blocks? Miles? Jesus heals a man from a likely terminal illness without touching him or even being in the room. Further, Luke doesn't even record Jesus speaking a healing word. Jesus speaks to the crowd about the faith of the centurion. And in the next verse, we read that they went home and found the servant well. There are no magic words. The authority of Jesus to heal is not constrained by a formula or even magic words. At Jesus' will, at his will, the servant is made well. That speaks to his power. Second, Jesus' compassion. Jesus was willing, apparently, to risk defilement to meet with this man. It would have been a bad thing for a Jewish man to spend time in the home of a Gentile soldier like this. And Jesus was willing to meet this man where he was to help him with no questions asked. So some observations and questions for us. Is there something we learn about the power and authority of Jesus here? Do we tend to limit what we think God can do in us 
or for us or through us because of geography or distance or ability or worthiness. Because none of these things are barriers to Jesus' work. Second, do we rely on a formula for how we expect Jesus to work in our lives? Do we, like the Pharisees, come at Jesus like with a trade? I've done these good things. I've been good in these ways, Jesus. Therefore, can you be good in these ways to me? We put our worthiness and our works forward as proof that Jesus is worth our time or that we're worth his time? Or do we insist on a particular rite or ritual of words that if, I, if said and done right, will guarantee that the Lord will act on our behalf and we treat him kind of like a vending machine? Put in the right thing, the right formula, the right amount, out comes what we desire. Instead, what if we see that the only real requirements, requirements for receiving the blessing of Jesus are just deep humility recognition of need and a sincere faith in Jesus, that he is the one who has the authority, that he is enough. Deep humility and sincere faith. In the life of the centurion and his servant, the the frailty of life is on display. And Jesus willingly comes with compassion and extends his power to heal. Let's look at the second healing as well, starting in verse 11, the healing of the widow's son. Let's read verse 11. Soon afterwards, Luke tells us, same day, next day, we don't know exactly, just soon, Jesus went to a town called Nain. Now Nain is a town about a day's journey from Capernaum. And as Luke tells it, Jesus, his disciples, and apparently a crowd that continues to follow Jesus around are moving together. And as they come near the city, they run into another crowd that's leaving the city. And this crowd leaving the city was a funeral procession. And Luke says it was considerable. It was a considerable crowd from the city that was there. Now, a funeral procession of the day would have been uh, quite an event. It likely would have been loud. Even for a poor family, there would have been mourners and musicians. And they they would process out from the town to the place of burial with weeping and singing, and crying out, and music, and wailing. And they were carrying the dead man on a a bear, which is just a frame or a a cart that would move the body, or if they had a coffin or something, it would be on on that cart. And Luke tells us that this man was the only son of his mother, and that she was a widow who would now be completely alone. Now what's interesting is that at the time, in this culture, A widow was supposed to be cared for by her family. If a woman's husband passed away, her children would care for her. So if this was her only son, then she would not only be facing the rest of her life alone, but she would also be facing significant hardship and likely poverty for the rest of her days. Now, what's interesting about this interaction is nobody actually called for Jesus. Nobody asked him to come. In the course of a normal day, when everyone's going about their business, Jesus comes upon a woman grieving and weeping. And Luke says, and when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. Jesus is moved deeply. Literally, his heart goes out to her. Have you experienced that? Have you felt that? Have you come upon a scene perhaps you weren't expecting and you know nothing 
of the situation, but you see enough of what's happening and your heart just sinks thinking about what others might be feeling and going through in that moment. I did this last week. I came upon a situation not far from my house where paramedics had just arrived on the scene literally minutes before I drove past and they were performing CPR on a man laying in the street. I knew nothing of the situation, but my heart just sank as I thought of this man and the crowds that had started to gather around. Did he have a family? Was he alone? Would he survive? And so I just started to pray as I continued on my way to get out of, get out of what was happening just to not be in the way. And I just prayed, Lord, have mercy. Now, sadly, it made the news and the man that I saw didn't survive. And as I watched that and having that recollection, my heart sank again. This is a little bit of what I think Luke means here when, when he says Jesus had compassion on her. His heart went out to her. Jesus approaches this woman and Luke tells us, Jesus says three words, do not weep. Can you imagine? She's been weeping likely for days at the loss of her son and Jesus comes out of nowhere and says, don't cry. That's it. And then in verse, look at verse 14. And then he came up and touched the, the beer, the bear, the, the cart. And those who were, who were moving the cart, the bearers, stood still. Can, can, you, can you picture the shock on their faces? Who are you and what are you doing? Much like entering the house of a Gentile, touching the cart or the coffin or the body of a dead man would be very unclean. And then he says, doesn't answer the, the confused mourners. You can imagine the crowd has now stopped and they're looking at this guy. Maybe some had murmured, hey, is that Jesus? We, we don't know exactly what's happening outside of the fact that Jesus puts his hand on the cart, stops the procession, and then turns and looks at the dead man and speaks to the dead man and says, young man, I say to you, arise. He, he, he looks at the dead man and says, get up. And in verse 15, Luke says, the dead man sat up and began to speak. Jesus commands life to enter his body, and he gets up. Here's the power and compassion of Jesus on display. The power. Remember, by the time you get to a funeral, he's been dead a few days. This young man is dead, dead. And Jesus says, get up. Jesus speaks life to where there was only death. And his compassion is on display in, in these ways, one, Jesus doesn't wait to be invited. He entered into the sadness of the widow and meets her there because he loves her, because he has compassion for her. His heart goes out to her and he feels her sadness with her. Further, when Jesus heals this man, Luke tells us he gives the man back to his mother, saying, here, your son has returned to you. Jesus puts back into her hands what had been taken away. And verses 16 and 17 tell us that fear, that awe, seized the crowd and they glorified God, saying there was a great prophet had arisen among us. This miracle of Jesus would have reminded the people who were around, the Jewish believers or the Jewish followers uh, around of the prophet Elijah, recorded in 1 Kings chapter 17, who cried out to God to heal the son of a widow 
And God heard Elijah's prayer and raised the boy to life. And 1 Kings tells us that Elijah brought the boy, brought the son to his mother. Word about Jesus and his work continued to spread throughout all of Judea and the surrounding country. So, a few more observations, questions for us. Alistair Begg, on this passage, comments that unlike others, Jesus doesn't simply comment on the enemies of mankind. He overcomes them. He defeats them. Sin, sickness, and death. He doesn't just remark on them. He does something about it. Like the centurion, faith in Jesus is faith that our greatest foes, our greatest enemies, sin, death, hell, and Satan are defeated. And that Christ has and will overcome them all. We're reminded that Jesus has compassion on the broken, that he hears and knows our sorrows even when we fully, uh, don't fully know them ourselves. The widow didn't ask for help. Nobody asked Jesus to intervene. But remember, Jesus isn't driven by formula. In his divine sovereignty and mercy, he uses the means of spirit-given faith to heal a centurion's servant and to raise a dead man to life. And finally, what he did here with this man, he will one day do for all of those who are his in a final and perfect resurrection from the dead. But our journey to that glorious end is not a straight line. It's full of trials. In a collection of what is titled uh, Letters to an American Lady, author C.S. Lewis writes this, We are not necessarily doubting that God will do the best for us. We are wondering how painful the best will turn out to be. Are you prone to doubting that God hears you? Are you prone to doubting that He knows you? That He's near to you? Particularly in our sorrows. Are you able in your grief to trust that God is working all things for your good and his glory? I think if we're honest, it's, it's easy to acknowledge that our condition is fatal, that life is frail, that it's short, that sometimes it's hard. And the best of us, at our strongest, is still remarkably weak. We have no control over viruses or cancer cells. We can't raise or lower our blood pressure or our cholesterol at will. We can't will our brains and organs to adjust the level of hormones we need to stay balanced. Now, there's lots we can do to to mitigate and treat, things that, that help us navigate these weaknesses with diet and exercise and therapies and treatments and medicine. And I'm grateful for the grace of God in all of these things. But the reality is, there is nothing that ultimately stops our terrible procession to the grave. Sin has affected everything. And so this brokenness, this entropy, this decay that we experience, this breaking down of all the things, traces its roots to sin and the effects on creation. But God. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, on our way to be buried, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. 
By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Christ's death and resurrection is the ultimate display of Jesus' power and compassion. And if Christ is ours by faith, our sad procession to the grave is halted. And embedded in the death and resurrection of Jesus is the promise that on that day, when Christ comes again to gather his church, he will bring with him full and complete comfort when we all will be raised and we all will be reunited with those who've gone before as we are united to Christ forever. And so while we wait, we ask for the Spirit's help for this kind of faith and we follow the lead of Jesus to, to walk in deep humility, willing to openly confess our need, to go to the one who can help us and acknowledge, would you come? We, we need help. We approach our Lord with confidence, asking in faith for the help that only one Only one can do something about our condition and our need. And we respond like our Lord, full of the Spirit, to be moved with compassion for the broken who live around us. See, we know that we are frail. We know that without any intervention, we are on that slow road to death. But thanks be to God for Jesus, the Son, who enters our brokenness with authority to heal that he creates life where there is death and he does so with compassion. Holy Spirit of God, increase our faith. Amen? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your love on display toward us in Jesus. We ask by the Holy Spirit that you would continue to conform us to the image of Christ. Would you grow our faith where it is weak that we might come to you, that we might ask, that we might seek your help, not pridefully, not to to trade our good works for your kindness in our lives, but with confidence that you love us and faith that you have the power to heal what is broken. Father, for those even now who are weary, who are burdened, For those among us who are grieving, would you show yourself to be near to the brokenhearted today? Would your care and compassion be on display? Spirit of God, would you do your work in conforming, excuse me, in comforting those who are grieving, those who are confused, those who are hurting? Would you be their helper and their comforter? Father, as you strengthen your people, as you strengthen us, would you set us loose with hands and words of compassion and help fueled by the power of the gospel at work in our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.